The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, October 21st. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I am here with a message of hope. A forward-looking message of hope. But to get to the hope, let us now plow through the dope. Here is Donald Trump from last night's Al Smith dinner. Everyone knows, of course, Hillary's belief that it takes a village, which only makes sense, after all, in places like Haiti, where she's taken a number of them. Joining me now is Al Smith. Hello, Al. Hey, how you doing? Good. Al, was that funny? No, it wasn't really funny at all. And how do you know that it wasn't funny? I didn't laugh. It was awkward and silent. It was just really bad. It wasn't a good joke. All right. The actual Al Smith who works at Slate, what is your position? I'm the director of strategy. Wow. Do you have any comedy credentials? I did UCB for about six years, and I got thrown out of a lot of elementary school classes for being a jackass. Yeah, well, Donald Trump got kicked. Well, he didn't get kicked out of second grade. He did punch his teacher in the face in second grade and got shipped up to a boarding school. Sounds about right. Yeah. and by, but So that comedy training, that's what taught you it wasn't funny. Uh, no, I think being a human intrinsically, you can just tell. Even the most unfunny person would be like, oh, that's a joke I would tell that would bomb immediately. All right. The actual Al Smith or an actual Al Smith slate is also looking to hire a Jefferson Jackson and New Hampshire presidential primary flip off. If you have those names, we have a theme we like to hire employees named after political events. Thank you, Al. You're welcome. Which brings me to this point. That joke has many of the hallmarks of Trump's deficiencies as a candidate. It's mean-spirited. It's kind of pointless. But more importantly, I think he might have left out a word or two. Trump is imprecise in his phrasings. His crowds love it. They never punish him for not really making a connecting A to B type point, so long as his intent is to bash Hillary or promote a weird theory. By the way, he had another joke where the setup was... Hillary is so... Corrupt. She got kicked off the Watergate Commission. All right, there's the setup. Now here's the punchline. How corrupt do you have to be to get kicked off the Watergate Commission? Pretty corrupt. Okay, here is the problem with that joke. It's not a joke. By that, I do not mean that this is serious. It's not a joke. I mean the opposite of that. That's not true. The idea that she got fired from the Watergate Commission, Snopes rates that as false. And they didn't need the Al Smith dinner to look at it. That has been a rumor floating around the internet for years. What happened was a former Watergate investigator wrote a book charging that that was the case. And uh, he asserted as much on his now shut down website. But that guy admitted many times that he didn't have higher fire responsibility. And also she wasn't fired. So as usually happens with a joke without a punchline, that relies on a setup without merit, that becomes a joke without a laugh. Now, those jokes came during the end of his set in a little cul-de-sac of mirthlessness. He got booed, but he did come out with some good zingers in the beginning. But generally, he was hurt by the fact that his material was to comedy what his convention speech was to political rhetoric, and also by the fact that he seemed to be encountering the jokes for the first time. Really, he was reading off the page, and it didn't seem like he knew what he was going to say. Hillary's material itself was better. One would imagine she had access to a higher tier of comedy writers than he did, but also she definitely was familiar with the jokes. She had read it beforehand. She knew where and what to emphasize, which reminds me of a Hillary Clinton joke. Donald wanted me drug tested before last night's debate. (laughs) And look, I got to tell you, I am so flattered 
that Donald thought I used some sort of performance enhancer. <laughs> now, actually, I did. It's called preparation. So fine joke, but Mike, is that the hope? Is that the hope you promised? Here, here is the hope. It is this idea that there will be a day, might be in a month, perhaps two months, when upon laying your head down on the pillow at night, you just might have this thought. Hey, you know what? I haven't said the name Trump today. I haven't thought the name Trump. I've spent 24 hours Trump free. And it might be the first time that that happened to you. Who knows? Maybe you could even go around bragging eventually about getting your 30-day Trump-free chip. Of course, once you announce that you're Trump-free or even think that you're Trump-free, you cease to become Trump-free. So what maybe you want to do is set a reminder for a couple months in the future just to ask yourself, hey, have you thought about Trump today? And then you could say yes, or if the answer is no, you reset. Maybe the guys at Facebook can monitor your input and output and then tell you, give you a message, hey, guess what? It seems like you've been Trump-free. And that will be a good day and hope will be visited upon you. On the show today, it has been three weeks since we've passed around the conch. Yes, it is an Antan twig. And also at the end of the whole show, it is a Slate Plus Gist Plus segment. It's what we call a not bat, which stands for not only this, but also that. What the hell goes on in a not bat in a Gist Plus segment? I invite you to sample Slate Plus for free for two weeks at slate.com slash slate plus. But first, let's analyze one of Dr. Jill Stein, Green Party candidate, just show guest. Let's look at a signature policy that she has. She wants to absolve all student debt. Hillary Clinton herself has a more moderate version of this stance. Let's talk about attacking college debt. Adam Davidson stops by to assess the wisdom of this policy. I'm joined now by Adam Davidson, who writes about economics for The New Yorker. So we interviewed Jill Stein earlier this week, and one of her big policies is eliminating, wiping out college debt. And I will tell you, Adam, that originally she had this idea to use quantitative easing, and I criticized that idea. In fact, I did so in questioning Jill Stein, and Jordan Weissman wrote articles about it for Slate. It turns out to be, I think, a terrible idea. I know that you agree with me, right? Literally the worst idea. It is. Yeah, it's yeah. such a, it would destroy central banking. It would destroy the so dollar. So not a good idea. Yeah, it's a, so this is why she said to me that she has moved away. I can I can say that she's moved away from that as the particular uh, policy. She's still talking about eliminating college debt. And I want to ask you, as someone who knows economics, uh, how useful would it be, or how harmful would it be if there was through the ways she was talking about a tax on finance, etc. We wiped out our college debt. How, what would that do for America and Americans? We have gotten to the point where we talk about this college, the student loan crisis, mm -hmm. but it's a very differently distributed crisis. So the people for whom it is a profound crisis, a life-changing, life-worsening, life-constraining crisis are people who went to private colleges, didn't get a degree, or got a degree that was worthless. And then some people who went to non-private colleges. But basically, the, the vast majority of people with student debt do have more student debt than their parents at this point in their life. It is an issue. It, it's, it's both an issue because it's just hard to have student debt, but it also 
does all sorts of things to the economy. It delays them buying their first home. It delays them. It maybe constrains what kind of jobs they can take. Like it's not a nothing issue, but it's very manageable. So the um, premium you get for having a good college degree, and that does not just mean Harvard and Yale. That means basically any college you've heard of that isn't in the city you're in. Mm-hmm. So like you and I have heard of- well, there are some that are in the city. Let's yeah, say yeah. you happen to live in Cambridge or, is it, or yeah. even Ames, Iowa. Right. But people who've yeah. heard of it that are in another city. Right, so right, you right, probably right. have not heard of like Anderson College in Andersonville, South Carolina. Is that the one in Andersonville? Oh, South Carolina. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just someone use that as an example mm-hmm. of like a business degree from Anderson College is like- you're in a worse position than if you never went to college. I don't mean to pick on that one. But I, I just mean any place that has enough of a rep- reputation that people outside of its yes, city. That this, that this signifies to people this is a bona fide educated patient, person. Right. And has the perhaps added degree of actually giving you an education. Yes. yes. Yeah. Now, there are issues there and and kind of once you're in second and third tier schools, you you might need to have a applicable degree and mm-hmm. you know in a stem field or some other field you want to the more go debt into you have in, in general the more debt you have from the worst school the worse you are yes so and, a lot and, of debt from a right. great school some debt from a bad school these are not great positions to be in yes yeah. exactly so go to harvard get as much debt as you want well, and major in french literature you're maybe screwed pro- i mean you're screwed if you make career choices that Pursue French literature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, your degree is fine in French <laughs> yes, literature. Yes, yes. You have a lot of options. Right. But if you choose to become, go into puppetry, then- I was just thinking puppetry is the one I was thinking of. Yeah. I think this is hypothetical person's dad runs a hedge fund though. So yeah, it's yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Anyway, I don't mean to, like, you know, you and I both have kids and they're young and it's they a way before they'll have go to college, but it's going to be hard. Like, it's going to be harder for us to pay for our kids' college than it was for our parents to pay for our college. That's just- and and that that's a big problem and it should be dealt with. But the population that we should truly be worried about in America is people whose parents did not go to college who are trying to go to college. We become very good at getting those kids into college, we become but we are just stuck and we're not getting them to graduate college. Yeah. And so this idea of getting into college but not completing so you get the debt but you don't get the degree or in some cases you get the degree, but it's a very low value degree or a zero value degree. Those are the people where there's a crisis. They are stuck in poverty because of student debt. There's a totally different problem for middle class and above kids of middle class and above parents who also went to college who get a degree and then struggle a bit in their 20s to find a, a good job and a good career. But on balance, that population is going to make way more money as a result of going to college than their parents did. So the premium for a college degree at a decent school has grown dramatically and way outpaced the cost of a degree. So if in Jill Stein's universe, money has no meaning and you can you can just zero out a trillion dollars and it has no implication, okay, maybe we want to raise student debt for some reason. But if we're going to have a trillion dollar write-off, mm-hmm. I would much rather focus it and concentrate it on the people who are in deep crisis. The basic story of America going from like 1880, 1890, which is basically a medieval economy. It's an agrarian local economy with where the average person will never go to high school, is barely literate, and is a subsistence farmer, to the America of the 1970s where the average person is doing 13 times better than their ancestors were 100 years earlier. 
a total transformation of life. Education is a major part of it. We went from a country in 1900 where fewer than 10% of Americans even attended high school. By World War II, half of Americans are graduating high school. By the 1970s, it's the norm to graduate high school. And we're beginning to eat into college where more and more people are going to college. And then it just kind of stops. And so the mobility, getting the children of non-college educated kids through college we're just stuck there. And that is the inequality crisis. Through college. But it seems yeah. like you're perhaps saying that it might be a good idea to absolve the debts of those who have accrued debts but didn't get their college degree. But wouldn't that create a moral hazard? Like, oh, you worked hard to graduate. We're not going to wipe out your debts. You didn't work hard enough to graduate. Okay. Everything was free. So then. what I would say we need is a lot more money going to the high-risk kids at the high-risk schools. So we need a lot more money spent on mentoring them, on helping guide them through school, unfortunately on remedial education because a lot of them are entering college with you know very low levels of math and, and, and regular literacy. If you go to a top-tier school, so an Ivy League mm-hmm. or like where, where I went, University of Chicago, that average school is spending about hundred more than $100,000 per student. And each student is paying about $50,000. So that student's already getting an unbelievably subsidized education, for which they're paying a lot, but they're not paying anywhere near the full cost. So that person is already getting a huge benefit. And then their lifetime earnings are something like it's several hundred thousand dollars more per year of, of completed college. Um, that's just not like we don't. That's. That's not the thing we should spend That's a public on, policy problem. It's an issue. Yeah. We should yeah. think about it. We should find ways. I, I would love to, for states not to cut funding to their public universities, and, and we should find ways to incentivize states to fund their public universities better and, and, and have more lower-cost options. But where we should dramatically increase the, the U.S. government debt and is, is, is not cutting the debt of middle-class people who are totally capable of paying it off, but but actually subsidizing the education of the poor. That, but what about Hillary Clinton's idea of debt-free public education? You know, that was an adjustment after um, Bernie, you know, Bernie pushed her. Pushed yeah. her. Um, I, I think that the way those numbers end up working is it's, you know, you, you're, you're transferring on balance, you're going to end up transferring money from the poor to the rich. Because if you think about who's looking at public universities, you know, and I could ima- I would love a universe where we have really good public universities and they're free. That sounds mm-hmm. great. And Europe does it. And yeah. Lots of other countries do it. And that sounds great. Well, she's it, not saying free. She's saying debt free. Debt free. Yeah. If you are a capable college student and your parents make less than fifty or $60,000 a year, you're very likely to get to leave school debt free, you know. Many of the Ivies have now have a needs-blind admission, and, and if your parents make less, in some cases, of 125000 something okay. like that, the colleges you know, can't be more than 10% of their income, depending on the school. And, and, and I think if it's below fifty or 60000 it's free. One clear outcome of this idea of making public, not fundamentally changing how we provide college education, but just making it much cheaper for more people to go to public universities, I think you just end up taking kids who are going to elite private schools and sending them to public schools. To, to, um, so, so you're 
the slots are going more to richer kids who are like, yeah, yeah, I'll take the debt-free one. Why not? Mm -hmm. And like I said, I don't think the issue for most people is debt. The issue for most people who have an issue is really not enough, in a sense, not enough debt. I mean, for the country as a whole, not for them individually. Yeah, not enough money the being people spent. people who can yeah. afford to pay. Yeah. Uh, right. This is a way of, if we talk about income inequality, one way to get things more e equal is for people who can't afford to pay for things to pay for those things. Yeah. And so the people who can't afford as well don't have to pay. And I get your point. Yeah. We disagree because I would, I would like my kid to go to uh, public school debt free. So we disagree just because of selfishness, if, that, if that's all right. Well, yeah. And if, right. The Mike Pesca tax where everyone has to pay a tax to Mike Pesca, you probably yeah. support that policy. That tax is this show. Yeah. 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 Um, but let me just give you – I mean this shocked me personally. But if you look at the average um, – so the average education at an Ivy League school – which the sticker price is fifty or sixty thousand a year, but the average person pays considerably less than that, and it's a hundred something thousand dollars of value that mm -hmm. you're getting of money, actual money being spent on teacher yeah. salaries, and of course, I'm, you know, I think most people look at this downplay all this stuff about like fancy student unions and all that, but you're basically saying, okay, this group of people get a hundred something thousand dollar value, and they have to pay like twenty twenty five thousand dollars for it. If you look at the average community college, the value is something like $8,000 and the average person is paying like $4,000. I'm off a little on the numbers, but it's we're, we're basically subsidizing the already privileged to the tune of $75,000, $80,000 a year as a whole system. I'm not, I don't mean mm -hmm. the, that's government plus the endowment of, of the private schools plus scholarships and all that stuff. Something like $80,000. And we're subsidizing the community college like $4,000 per student per year. The graduation rates at the top schools are like 96%. Even the like third tier publics, it's like 67%. But community college, it's like less than 40%. And like CUNY, I mean, you and I live in New York. I've always thought CUNY was a great program. It's something like 20% graduation rate. It's terrible. Yeah. So if you kind of figure out the average student is getting a $4,000 subsidy, but you only get it really if you graduate. So the average student isn't graduating. Yeah. And if so, four out of five students aren't getting that, yeah. if you do the math, it winds up not being a subsidy at all. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, if you came to America from Mars or something and said like so how do you guys like I, I i just read that education is a crucial step towards living a prosperous life in this country it's a huge value so how do you tell do me it? how you've prioritized how that. you prize it well what we do is like there's this group of people whose parents went to college they're definitely going to college they're yeah. almost definitely graduating they can make some choices but basically if they want to they can have a lifetime of comfort and we subsidize them eighty thousand dollars a year and then there's this group of people who we call marginally attached to the workforce um, they are totally unprepared for college they need enormous hand-holding and it is a potentially transformative impact on their life yeah but we give them like a grand or two a year but a lot of them also give us, like several thousand a year. And that and then we have this new politician who says let's do a program that increases the $80,000 subsidy to $110,000. You get my point. I do. Okay. What you're saying is quantitative easing for student debt is a great idea. It's a great, great idea. idea. Yeah. Adam Davidson covers economics for The New Yorker. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel, it is an Antan twig 
our name for a three-week period from the old English Anne and Ten Twig 21. We made the word up, but it could exist. Let us now hear from some of our listeners. For instance, on the Jill Stein interview, I got lots of feedback. Chris Collins wrote, I feel like she proved herself to have a theory about the world, but no real solutions for what is happening in the world. She didn't offer any real solutions to what is happening now. And Douglas Sutton said, great interview with Dr. Stein. Interesting. I agree with the ideology, but disappointed in the lack of practical solutions. Excellent work. It is interesting, and it is a problem I have with, I've noticed, the left, very liberal people. Ask them, what policy should we take internationally, often internationally, and they'll give you a history lesson about you what U.S. policy was, as if I didn't know. Well, I guess a lot of people don't know, so it's really incumbent upon them to give us the history lesson. That the United States funded the Mujahideen, that the U.S. created Hugo Chavez, that the U.S. is in this predicament we're in now because what the U.S. has done. So we've got to realize that it's the United States' fault. You know, going back to Vietnam. Okay, great. But here we are. Here we are today. Some of what you're saying is dead on. You're actually interpreting the history correctly. And of course, we should all remember the past, lest we repeat a quote about George Santa Ana. But what now? I get what you're saying, but still, it's called the Zin reader, not the Zin doer. And I will acknowledge, sometimes mistakes were made. Sometimes it was because we were advancing business interests and imperialism. Sometimes it was in the service of idealism, like thinking of Stalin as Uncle Joe. And sometimes it's just because shit happens. Doesn't mean that you should stop digging. That said, I did get good praise for the Stein interview overall. Of course, I'm not a raging egotist. I know that I host a podcast called The Gist, and most people who listen to the Stein interview on the podcast called The Gist, an opt-in podcast, are perhaps Gist fans. And so when Stein and Pesca go head-to-head, they like what was coming out of Pesca's head hole. So when Dr. Stein and merely Mr. Pesca go tete-tete, perhaps Pesca, in the minds of many of my listeners, comes off well. Not all of my listeners. Walter Zikanowski of Providence, Rhode Island writes, was looking forward to a deep dive into Stein's foreign policy, but Mr. Gist turned it into a pissing contest over who knows more about international relations. Too bad, missed opportunity. Actually, maybe I am a raging egotist because I took that comment to mean we got in a pissing contest and he thinks I won. So new rule, if you lose a pissing contest on international relations with the host of a podcast, you cannot be president. Unless the hosts we're talking about are Christina and Corinne from Guys We Fucked, because they know a lot about the Baltic states and Malaysian-based micro-lending. Good podcast. Okay, other comments. I was talking about one of the Trump accuser's statements. He was at me like an octopus. He had six arms. And I noted it's actually eight, widely thought of to be eight. But David Whitehill corrected me. He flagged it as pedantry, but he tweeted at me an article, actually, octopuses have six arms. Come on, isn't this us imposing human standards? Look, they have appendages. Fine, you want to talk about two of the appendages are mostly for locomotion and the rest are for grabbing some stuff. I'll buy it, but arms, legs, really two legs? And then I read the study. Octopuses, eight tentacles, divide up into six arms and two legs. A study published by a chain of commercial aquariums said on Thursday. Actually, octopuses don't have eight arms. They have six appetizers and two entrees. A chain of Italian seafood restaurants confirmed. You got your marinara arm. You got your fra diavolo arm. You got your almond garlic sauce. Very nice. And now the Lopstar, our award for the best listener Facebook poster or Twitterer. 
both Lopstar and the runner-up reacted to that time I sang in the voice and manner of Bob Dylan. Now, the runner-up Lopstar, I cannot give the actual award to. Nepotism precludes me. Also, most GIST listeners opt in. Here is one of the two GIST listeners who experienced the show when the host plays it for them specifically. I can play it for you, but that is a Slate Plus Plus segment. At the end of today's show, there will be a Slate Plus segment, but it's not me coming to your home and actually playing the song for you. Anyway, here's my son with a critique of me singing on the show. State your name, please. Amy Pascal. Okay. You recently had a review of a certain singer. Who was the singer? My dad, Mike Pascal. And what did you say? Uh, what was your impression of Mike Pascal singing the songs of Bob Dylan? It sounded like a a farmer that has like one of the farmers that have a terrible voice. Wait, are you saying a farmer? <laughs> a farmer with a terrible voice. A farmer. Why a farmer? Because sometimes farmers like. That's what farmers sound like. Yeah. Wait, we can't. We, obviously, Milo has to say something. Yes, Milo? To end this podcast, we would say, And how many times must a dad be wrong before he can become Maggie on a for- farm? A farmer. True enough. But none more true than this from Paul Vickers of Woodbury Forest, Virginia. Whenever Mike Pesco opens his mouth to sing... The babies are crying, the birdies take wing, and I open my ears and insert my fingers to keep out that voice that is grating. That voice Kochi had didn't do anything, cause the key it keeps a changing. So to Paul Vickers, it's a lapse. It's a lapse. It's a lapse. It's a lapse. It's a lapse star of the antenna twig. And that's it for today's show. Chris Berube, just producer, dealt with today's internet outage by pretending it didn't happen. It was denial in the service of a denial of service. Mary Wilson produces the gist with a little help from a performance-enhancing drug. It's called Preparation. H day as executive producer of Slate Podcast is better than the last, says Steve Lichtai, assuming the last was today, when he could not scour Twitter for disparaging mentions of mom and dad are fighting or Mr. Robot spoiler specials. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network. How do you become chief content officer of the Panoply Network, huh? How? I mean, how? Is this mic defective? The gist. We skip the Al Smith dinner, but always make the Al Molinero breakfast buffet. The eggs don't stop when cooked by Murray the Cop. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.